All right, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Buffalo Beat. My name is Joe Biscalia. Thanks, everyone, for joining me on this bi-week special episode of the uh, of the podcast. The Bills, obviously, just coming off what will likely be their marquee victory of the entire 2022 regular season. And that was a 24-20 to win in Kansas City over the Chiefs. Some really fascinating late-in-the-game plays, and we have a ton of stuff available on everything from that Bills-Chiefs game over at The Athletic, from my observations uh, to Tim Graham's look at Von Miller and what makes him so great. Uh, that, that little profile from after the game was awesome. Um, and then you have uh, Ted Wynn, one of our film guys at, at The Athletic. He uh, put together an a really cool look at at the uh, defensive structure of what the Bills were able to do. And then I did my all 22 uh, for player grades and some of my top takeaways from, from the game. You can find all of that over at The Athletic. So Bills Chiefs bonanza <laughs> over at The Athletic. And um, by the way, if you if you haven't subscribed, you can go to theathletic.com slash the Buffalo Beat and get a discount uh, on your subscription. So I would advise you to do so. That's theathletic.com slash the Buffalo Beat. So the bye week is here. And the Bills getting a week off after their first six games is a good place to reset. I always kind of take it this way, no, no matter when it starts in the season. I think it's a good time to start to think about some of the bigger picture items rather than the minutia of what we saw the last week or what's ahead of us. It's just very natural in that way. And I think a lot of um, a lot of the things that roll through my mind when I start to think about the the whole scope of the season, you know, some of it is big picture. Some of it is more in the weeds, um, I guess, positional stuff. And I'm going to get to all of that uh, throughout this episode because there are certain elements that we can look at that can translate to the rest of the season and even into the off season that we'll get into uh, that that I've found that I've been sitting on and thinking about stewing on over the last few weeks. So we'll, we'll get into all that. But first off is the big picture about this start. The Bills, of course, are five and one. They are at the top of the AFC. Nothing is going to change that. Um, by the time they get out of their bye, they're five and one. No other team in the AFC has only one loss. The Bills are that team right now in the catbird seat. They have the uh, they have the tiebreaker edge on the Chiefs, the Ravens, and the Titans, who are the second, third, and fourth uh, seeded teams currently after six weeks in the AFC. They've got a win over the Rams, and I'm sure the Rams are going to turn their stuff around before too long. They're just too good of a team to not, and too well coached of a team to not really. So they have five or four really impressive wins. Another win over a Steelers team and barely a loss to the Dolphins where there's some pretty extreme circumstances surrounding that game. So the Bills are, for my money, they're the best team in the league. And so I guess what it ultimately brings me to is what is it, what does it mean for uh, for the rest of the season? Because they came in with such high expectations. We all know exactly what was said, when was said. Uh, the odds makers have had the Bills at the top of their 
at the top of their list for ever, basically. Um, and ever since they've gotten all of the, the new pieces to their defense, it's really just kind of amplified it a bit more. Where this, the slow buildup to this year has finally seemed to result in a team that is an absolute dynamo and one that is among the best in the league from an from an analytical and efficiency perspective on offense. And the same thing goes for the defensive side. And the more impressive thing is on defense, they have missed some pretty integral pieces uh, throughout certain games. And then, of course, they've been out without Micah Hyde for almost the entirety of the regular season so far. So this is this is a an unbelievable start for this franchise. And I don't care how confident you were in the Bills heading into the season. I don't know that anyone could have foreseen them being as dominant as they have been through the first six weeks. Of course, they had to get uh, get a come-from-behind victory over the Ravens. They scored a, uh, a last-minute touchdown to beat the Chiefs. But those are two good teams, and those are going to be two playoff teams this year. And odds are the Bills are going to face one of those teams uh, in the playoffs at, at one point or another. But what does this mean to the to the scope of the season and how to maybe operate moving forward? Because I think the, the schedule does soften. They have a few teams with winning records like the Jets and the Vikings, and that's basically it. There's a bunch of three and three teams. Um, but there are there are a few examples of fool's gold. I think the Vikings right now, they're five and one. They're a little bit fluky. Uh, they've got one of the lowest margins of victory um, of any team that has started five and one since 2000. Uh, there's there's been a certain amount of luck that has gone their way, and there's really close games. They let teams get back into games. So I don't know if that's as daunting as their record indicates, but there's other teams out there. Like I think the Patriots are going to be a tougher out than I thought they would have about three weeks ago. Uh, their defense looks great. The, um, the Bengals, I think, are going to really hit their stride by the time the Bills get to them. So that could be a tough out. But other than those opponents... I'm not really seeing like a lot of things that could trip them up to get them into a losing streak. Not the way this team is playing and and not um and certainly not when they're firing on all cylinders and even when they're not and they're facing adversity. That's what has made this this early start so impressive. So I guess them being even better than maybe expected heading into the season has to have you thinking big for the season. And, you know, I, I do a show here in, in Buffalo um, over on Channel 7 every Monday night. And they every single week they ask for final thoughts. They ask for final thoughts. Um, and usually I, I stick to something that happened from the game, like probably some stupid offensive line or defensive line thing that only my – nerdy idiotic brain would would bring up on a television show where no one really cares about it <laughs> other than me but this time around this past monday i said i think it's time for the bills to push their chips in and 
that has a lot of different meanings, but I think specifically to me, it means they should not be afraid of a big move at the trade deadline. And we're not going to get too far into like who they should trade for or anything like that. We'll do something like that uh, in on next week's episode, because I think that's a, that's a different thing altogether that we could get into. And it'll be about a week ahead of the, uh, ahead of the trade deadline. But with how good this team is and how many injuries that they've suffered throughout the start of the season, I don't know. It's just, to me, you get so few opportunities like this one where you see the talent meeting the execution, meeting the production meeting the synergy of the locker room. And the Bills have all of those kind of pointing upward uh, as as they've gone through their first six weeks. There's just this very confident, uh, calm poise about them this year that I haven't seen from them in previous seasons. So these are indicators to me. These are signals to me that if they find themselves an opportunity where there is a a star player that a team maybe scoffed at moving ahead of the season but are now in a spot where it's like okay we need to start collecting draft assets i think the bills should be in a strong position to be one of those teams to strike you know it's not you don't always get those opportunities at the nfl trade deadline it's not quite like any other league it's getting better, no doubt. Like the the trade deadline acquisition of Von Miller by the Rams last year, I think certainly opened up some eyes to not only the selling teams, but to the buying teams. Like, okay, this, this can absolutely serve as a catalyst. And I think the Bills have been pretty good at evolving with how they've been building the roster. Like before the past couple of years, uh, they didn't really dip their toes into kicking the can down the road with their salary cap, but they have done that because they feel like they are right in the Super Bowl window. So that, to me, e- even though even though that uh, Brandon Bean loves his draft picks and he uh, loves to build through the draft, what exactly are you building to if not for a Super Bowl? So if you feel you are close, and I think that they're really damn close, and the AFC is not as good as everyone thought it would be coming into the year. Um, certainly the Chiefs and the Ravens are likely to be there uh, as potential pitfalls, but teams like the Broncos, the Raiders, the Chargers, like... These are still teams that could be capable of making it to the playoffs, but are they going to make truly make noise once they get there? It's it's looking unlikely. The AFC South is a mess. Um, the AFC North is the Ravens and the Bengals. The Bengals will probably have have a a good say at things as well by the time the playoffs come around. But still, they have been up and down this season. The Bills just have this level of um, all in all. Dominance is the wrong word, but like they they know who they are and they are able to capitalize on most situations and they have the confidence to capitalize in late game situations. So all of these things check out where 
it seems it feels like the time is right for Bean to make an aggressive move. He learned his lesson back in what was it, 2017, trading for Kelvin Benjamin. Uh, he thought they needed one thing, kind of forced the issue. Um, and I think he learned from that, and they haven't really dipped their toes in the trade deadline water since. But I think now the, the difference between that year and this year is that they felt like they were close to making the playoffs. This year, it's a, it's a totally different zip code. They are close to potentially winning it all this year. Heck, even just getting to the Super Bowl. And if they feel like there is a catalyst out there that can make their team better at a spot where like, okay, maybe they have a they have a good starter or a slightly above average starter. If they can find someone that pushes that spot over the edge and gives the team a dynamic that they hadn't had before that player arrived, absolutely they they should they should do so. So I don't often advocate for pushing all the chips in and and dicing up some of your draft capital but it seems like this is the year if they were to do that i think this is the year so uh, i'm not sure that i would i would trade away a first round pick or anything like that but um i feel like the bills would would have to uh make some long and hard decisions about whether or not to do that and um Certain these opportunities like this don't don't come around all that often. So you know, kick that around the brain. There maybe maybe there's there's a safety out there. Maybe there's a a, a guard that can infinitely help them. Um, you know, maybe it's an additional pass rusher to pair with Von Miller. Uh, I I don't know that I would necessarily rule anything out. You know, running back and wide receiver are two popular ones out there that people are kind of kicking it, kicking the idea around. So I, I think anything that makes the team that could take the team to the next level um, should be e- even past the level they already are just to be like this overwhelming force uh, heading into the postseason. I think uh, they have to really think uh, quite a bit about heading into the trade deadline, which is November 1st. All right, let's get into some of the more, I guess, like I termed it, in the weeds topics that I've been kicking around over the past few weeks. Uh, the first one, I think, is relevant because of what is to come, maybe even as early as week eight, and that's the Tredavious White uh, return. Like I said on the podcast leading into the Chiefs game, he looked good uh, on the Wednesday and Thursday. He was not out there for the five minutes of stretching that the media gets to see uh, on the Friday before the Chiefs game. So not really sure what's going on there. The Bills don't meet with the media again until next week, the early next week. But I think seeing him move around without hesitation and didn't really seem like he was in his head too much. Uh, It seemed like it, it was just back to his normal self and the way that he moved around the field. So that was an encouraging sign. We'll see if he's actually able to play against the Packers. That would be the uh, the pie-in-the-sky idea for them. But it does bring up a question. The first question is, how much would he play in in his first game back? You know, that that is probably a a different sort of thing than, than I'm thinking about. 
for the long term of it, but maybe they they kind of slowly build him up and maybe he's not a 100% snap guy right away, but eventually builds up to that way. So I'm thinking of two, three weeks down the line after Tredavious White makes his debut, his season debut. To me, after watching the film of the first six weeks, it has become really clear that the three cornerbacks that they have been using without Tredavious White being available, Dane Jackson, Kair Elam, and Christian Benford, all three of these guys have kind of leveled off to a similar place. Dane Jackson started the year, he was their best cornerback, and he has since kind of come back down to earth a little bit. The Chiefs game, there were some difficulties in coverage. Uh, he missed a couple of tackles, struggled to get off blocks. These are things that you have to analyze when you're when you're going through and making a decision like this as to who will start with Tredavious White. Or is it a group effort like that they have done in the past? But the, the difference is this time they have three rather than just two options to do it. And so you have to kind of pick your spots. Kair Elam has made some really big plays. He's also gotten burned more than any other uh, boundary cornerback that they've played legitimate snaps this season. So there's a there's an up and down sort of phenomenon with him. Like we saw he picked off the pass early against the Chiefs and then went on to have some beats in coverage throughout the rest of the game. So it was just kind of a, hey, that part was great, but what about the consistency? I think that's that's the area that would concern them the most. And then Christian Benford is someone that that uh, has really been good with consistency, but has lacked the uh, the big play sort sort of thing. So it's just kind of what you want um, out of out of your second cornerback. I would tend to think it would probably be one of Dane Jackson or Kyrie or Elam getting the go ahead. But the fact that they were still splitting snaps between Elam and Benford, even against the Chiefs, uh, in his first game back, Benford's first game back, I should say, it just kind of uh, makes you wonder what they're going to do with all three of these guys kind of playing at similar levels. I, I know a lot of you out there will be like, well, just play Elam. He's the first-round pick. He's got the uh, the pedigree, the potential, everything like that, but... Most years, I would probably agree with you. However, I think there's a difference about this year in them wanting to have their optimal lineup as opposed to, you know, majoring in development and eventually hoping that that player would get there. If Kyer Elam is not the best player of the three, then he shouldn't play this season. The year is too important. You know, down the line next year when they start to turn over their roster a little bit more and, um, you know, they're not going to be as good or as dominant as they have been throughout this season so far, then that's a time to see what you have. But if he, he hasn't earned it, not to say that they wouldn't, it's just food for thought that he hasn't been the best. In fact, over the course of the season on my All-22 grades, I have him as the lowest graded of the three. Now, the margin isn't like that crazy between the three, but it's still notable that he has the lowest grade of those guys. Um, Benford is second and Dane Jackson is first, but not a huge gap between the three of them. 
So I wonder if maybe it's just an audition. Uh, maybe they play all three guys throughout a game. One way or another, one of these guys has to earn this spot because none of them have made it easy on the Bills to this point where it's like, yep, that's the guy. That's the guy they're going to be starting with Tredavious White. So it will be very intriguing to see how they handle it, not only against the Packers, if Tredavious White is back, but in the couple of games after that. If one of those three gets phased out and then it's down to two, I'm not sure who you're phasing out right now. That's that's the, the bigger problem because they're all kind of similar. So that, to me, is one of the biggest questions that need to be answered throughout the rest of the season. And um, I think we're, we're getting closer and closer to that uh, coming to fruition. Another thing I'm thinking about in terms of playtime, and I, this is a popular one that also involves a rookie, is at the wide receiver spot. Uh, I know fans were extremely frustrated with Isaiah McKenzie after that Chiefs game. You know, the the botched pitch play. There was a missed catch opportunity um, kind of over the middle of the field. It was maybe a little high, but it was on a play where Allen was kind of trying to fend off some defenders and uh, McKenzie didn't bring in the catch. So... it it is uh, it was evident based on some of the reaction that we've received um, just via social media and comments things like that that uh, Isaiah McKenzie did not exactly endear himself to Bills fans especially when there is an enticing rookie player who is who could play his primary position that has looked pretty good um in the three times that we've seen him in a you know a definitive offensive role and that being Khalil Shakir so I guess the the big question is how do they handle this moving forward because in it was kind of a a tale of two halves in the in the first or in the I'm sorry in the first half against the Chiefs it was basically all Isaiah McKenzie um, his snap count as compared to Shakir's, I believe on, on plays where they were not on the field at the same time was 24 to six in favor of McKenzie. And that is a, a pretty big split, um, for 30 plays, him getting 24. That's a, that's a big percentage for McKenzie and a lot bigger than what we saw when it was McKenzie and Jamison Crowder. But the interesting thing is, and some factors could have played into it, whether or not it was the, whether or not it was McKenzie, you know, getting banged up throughout the game, uh, maybe because he'd taken so many snaps that he was a little, a little more tired by the end of the game. He was just coming off a concussion protocol, so that's another factor here. But over the the final stretch of the game, Khalil Shakir wound up with, uh, with eight receiver snaps as opposed to McKenzie's 13. And that to me is interesting to see how they might divvy it up moving forward. Has Khalil Shakir endeared himself enough to the coaching staff and has he helped them elicit trust in him to put him out there as often as they did for Jamison Crowder? 
I don't foresee a takeover by Khalil Shakir. I think what you'll likely see is maybe Shakir just slots into that Crowder role. And for McKenzie, he'll still be the first one on the field of the two of them. But maybe that that snap share starts to come closer to even than uh, than it did in the first half against the Chiefs because Shakir gives them a certain something that McKenzie just doesn't. But the other thing that Shakir can do, which is why his snap count might be even higher than than what Jamison Crowder did, not too much, not too terribly much, but Shakir is able to play the boundary spots a lot more capably than McKenzie. So on the plays that Stefan Diggs or Gabe Davis need to catch a breath, or maybe they just want a different look. I think that's an opportunity for Shakir to to work more in with the offense as well. So I could definitely see a 55-45 slot snap share between McKenzie and Crowder, and then Shakir's slot, uh, snaps going up a little bit uh, just because of his versatility. But... I'm not ruling out a takeover by the end of the season. I just don't think it's the way that they've utilized their rookies in the past. I don't think that that's something they will be eager to do when McKenzie has still given them some good games and some really clutch plays even this season. So something to keep an eye on, but I'm not necessarily thinking that the Khalil Shakir era has begun. I think his biggest mark on the team will come in years two and three a lot the same that it did with uh, a guy like Gabe Davis Um, so we will see how they play it as we move on but Shakir is uh, one to keep an eye on as as they uh, get into the regular season looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Sticking on the offensive side, I've really been impressed with how the offensive line has come together over the last couple of weeks. You know, it was easier against the Steelers because the Steelers were down pretty bad. Uh, They lost some defensive linemen early in the game, and that didn't necessarily help their depth or their explosiveness to get into the backfield. But uh, I really think the Bills collectively over the last two weeks have, have played their two best games on the offensive line both in run blocking and in pass blocking and it is an important facet for this team because they were playing below expectations early on in the year Um, Roger Saffold has gotten better it was a tough start for him Ryan Bates has gotten a lot better over the last couple of weeks it was a very tough start for him those two guards which is why when we talked about the notion of okay why can't this team run the ball it was because of what was happening up front. You know, the, for the most part, Deion Dawkins, Mitch Morse, and by the way, Mitch Morse had an unbelievable game against the Chiefs. I encourage you to go check out my All-22 uh, 
uh, piece over at the athletic because he was awesome in that game. But, um, and right tackle Spencer Brown, those three guys have been, well, Dawkins and Morse have been really good. Brown has been solid. The weaknesses have been at guard and it's blown up a lot of things as they've gone forward. But what I've really, um, enjoyed seeing is the evolution of how they are calling their run plays. Uh, they have gotten rid of a lot of the outside zone stuff that they they had been utilizing earlier in the season. They are doing more pulling. Uh, they are they are really just finding different unique ways to do it without uh, putting the offensive line in a difficult position on those wide zone plays to where they can't exactly get to the spot that they need to or get to the player that they need to. Just there's just been. It hasn't been great um, anytime they've run that, and they've moved away from it for uh, a great deal. But now uh, the offensive line, the starters, are in a seem to be in a good place, and I don't think the Bills are going to make any panic moves at that position unless you know one of these one of these two guards just completely goes down the tubes again this season. I think the bigger question is about the depth of the offensive line. And that has been a concern throughout the uh, throughout the summer, even throughout the spring. They have not invested in the depth with the draft pick. They have not uh, done much more than bring on some journeyman guys like David Quesenberry, Greg Van Roten, Bobby Hart. Uh, Justin Murray is the newest one. Outside of... Tommy Doyle, they haven't really done anything significant for their depth over the last two years. And that could come back to bite them if they don't make some auxiliary moves Auxiliary moves here. So when we're looking at what they could do at the deadline, who they might sign, you know, if, if, so, if a, a solid guard or, or a solid tackle becomes available um, that is maybe like a, a fringe starter, but you know a bit better than what they have right now. I think the Bills should uh, really think long and hard about about uh, adding that because I'm just I just would not feel confident having one of those three primary reserves, that being Quesenberry, Van Roten, and Bobby Hart, out there for a lot of snaps and a lot of games in a row if they if they uh, suffer a serious injury. And their depth might be tested already because David Quesenberry could wind up being the starter against the Packers. We don't know much about Spencer Brown's ankle injury at the moment. Uh, we do know that he was seen in a walking boot in Kansas City after the injury. That sometimes is preventative, but we have to see how they, uh, how that situation unfolds and they could have a guy like David Quesenberry in the starting lineup. And Quesenberry, to his credit, um, he he got better as the game went on. Had a really bad beat against Chris Jones that resulted in a sack. It was that tripping play, if you remember, that Josh Allen got mad about against the Chiefs. Um, should have been a trip. I agree with Allen on that one. But it was still a a lost rep by, by Quesenberry to be in that position in the first place. So the depth of the offensive line remains one of the the top things that I think they should consider addressing um, 
in addition to you know maybe adding a, a piece at wide receiver uh and and some other things that they could do along the offense and defensive side and the last thing that i saved this one for last because i think it's the most eh, maybe not difficult but it's the type of conversation that makes you think a little bit uh, more than just like the here and now stuff, which is cornerback, um, wide receiver, Shakir, the offensive line, the depth issues. And this delves into the offseason. So maybe it's not like the most pressing thing for the Bills and what you all are thinking about, but I think it needs to be in not the back of the brain. I think it needs to be in the middle of the brain where you think about what these individual performances and what we're seeing right now could lead to. And it all stems to me about their two biggest remaining um, guys in contract years, which are Tremaine Edmonds, the linebacker, and Jordan Poyer, the safety. They already re-signed Dawson Knox. He's taken care of. I don't know that they're going to be willing to give big bucks to Devin Singletary to bring him back. Maybe they do, but uh, I don't think it's a priority by any means. They have a lot of other things that they need to do. But this Tremaine Edmonds versus Jordan Poyer potential debate is very intriguing to me. Now, I know the initial impulse is to go, oh, just just bring back Poyer um, if you had to pick between the two. But I don't think it's it's super simple. He has meant a lot to the Bills and what they have done this year, especially without Micah Hyde. But let's also not ignore the fact that Poyer has now suffered three separate injuries since the start of training camp. He has missed two games throughout the season um, thus far. And... He suffered that elbow injury in, in the summer that knocked him out for a bunch of different practices. It comes to a point where if you're taking this big of a toll, and I know that you know people referring to his age is not Poyer's favorite thing, but it's a factor. And if you're taking on this many injuries, is it a prudent franchise decision to extend him past this current year? They still have Micah High under contract and he's expected to come back in 2023. So it's not as though they are barren at safety without without Poyer. But it, it does lead you to food for thought that when guys get to the end of their careers, their bodies break down a little bit easier. I mean, hi, hello. I'm I am not an NFL player. I'm 35 years old and, you know, I wake up with a pain every now and again. I'm like, "What the hell is that from?" It's just part of life. That's that's what happens uh, as as you get a little bit older. But I think Extending Poyer based on what he has meant to this season in particular is short-sighted, a tad short-sighted, I'll say, only because it would feel like more of an emotionally driven financial and franchise dictating decision than 
than uh, if you were to believe that he could keep this going for the foreseeable future. I'm not, you know, just in general roster building logic, I don't know that it makes a ton of sense to invest in those types of guys um, as they get deeper into their into their um, careers. Just, you know, there's more things that could go wrong, um, uh, the higher likelihood, I should say. And that, that should, and when you have like a potential for the player wanting top level safety money, as Poyer has made it pretty clear that, that he would like to get compensated better than he is, I just don't know that it makes sense regardless of everything that he has done. He's already playing under his current deal. You know, let's, it's almost like leave 2022 in a vacuum and then make the best decision for the franchise moving forward. And the other piece to this puzzle is Tremaine Edmonds, who I know is not everyone's favorite, but I would encourage everyone to go and watch the coach's film, if you can, of the Chiefs game and watch 49 because he was on fire. He, the way that I termed it was, it was a ceiling game for him where he was able to do all of the things that they have wanted from him throughout his entire career, um, all wrapped him into this one dynamic game. The coverage was top notch. Um, the way that he recognized and uh, how quickly he reacted to get to where he needed to be was outstanding his block shedding was really good against the Chiefs and that's been kind of a a thing for him throughout his career that he's had to overcome his stuff pre and post snap I mean go and check out um, Dan Orlovsky's video on Tremaine Edmonds Uh, I think it was on Monday or Tuesday about how he was keying on Travis Kelsey and as soon as Kelsey made one move he he switched the entire defense that's that's the type of stuff that they're looking for. And so, but the Edmonds debate is interesting because his age, he's still very young. And I know people get tired of hearing that, but he's still very young, very young in NFL years to where he'll probably do well on the open market. The Bills have not re-signed him. They're kind of playing it in a similar way that they did with Matt Milano last year, honestly or I'm sorry, a couple of years ago. And that still remains something that they need to resolve whether or not that they are going to do it. But I think they're allowing the year to kind of see what he is and what he isn't. And the reason why the Edmonds point is so interesting to me is that it almost feels like the Bills are reaching this, the end of this um, this cycle between their two linebackers and the two safeties. The two safeties have been so good for so long starting next to each other, but one had to have neck surgery. The other one has been injury injured now three times this past year, and the one that's been injured three times, his contract is up. It almost feels like if you remove names and emotions from the situation it seems like it would be a little more prudent to 
let the safeties play out their current deals, but then to also invest in the linebackers as as your two. Because I, I remember Brandon Bean um, talking about how they don't really like allocate certain amounts of cap room per position. They just kind of go with what they have on the roster and, and the strengths of their roster at that time. So I almost wonder if the linebackers replace the safeties in terms of taking on high cap dollars and then you build up the safety room through the draft um, the way that the Bills did with the linebackers, have the safeties on cost-controlled deals while paying your linebackers and then just kind of have a back-and-forth thing to where when Milano and Edmonds get up there to where Hyde and Poyer are now, then you head back and invest in the safeties that you invested in in the draft. That would be the pie in the sky idea. Of course, you need all of these things to go right. You need draft picks to hit, but they have shown a, a proclivity of drafting well to the secondary and developing well to the secondary. So maybe rather than starting over at linebacker and then probably needing to start over at safety, in the next year or two, wouldn't it make more sense or some sense to lock in Tremaine Edmonds, have him and Milano be the pair for the foreseeable future because they work so well together, and then get to the certain point when when they reach around the same age as, uh, as Hyde and Poyer do, and then start this whole conversation again. I know these are very off in the distance conversations, but the Tremaine Edmonds decision to me is the single most intriguing um, decision the Bills have had to make on one of their own draft picks, and it's not even close. Because he is so highly regarded in the building, a little bit more maligned in the public, but there is no doubting the impact that he has on the roster and on on the individual games. They aren't always like they were against Kansas City. There are times where he has fallen to the wayside in um, some more physical games. But he has been a strength far more often than not for the Bills. And, and it's all about how they want to play this thing. If... They feel like, and Terrell Bernard's a piece of this too, because they drafted him in the third round. But if they feel like he's got starting potential, maybe it makes it easier to move on from Edmonds. But again, it would feel like starting over at three different spots within the next two years, as opposed to having the strength of your linebacker core while you're figuring things out on the back end. Just one of those things that I've been pondering, and it certainly came to the top of my brain once uh, once I watched how well Edmonds played, and the fact that I think he's he's going to get paid pretty well this offseason. You know, the Bills can structure it in a way that's conducive to their cap over the next or through 2024, and then the the contract would probably balloon thereafter. Even still. Um, I think the Bills want to see 
what ends up happening with the rest of the season. If Edmonds gives them games on games like like the we the one we saw against the Chiefs, it's going to force the Bills' hand. But you know, I suppose just like the Poyer situation, you just have to see how the rest of the season unfolds. But either way, very very interesting, intriguing stuff as to what they will do between those two guys if they even sign either of them. That's that's another piece to the puzzle. Like maybe they just say, "Okay, we're we're good on both." And then um try and reset organically from there. Can't keep everybody. They would like to, but they can't because as much as some people might want to say otherwise, the salary cap is indeed real. You just have ways to uh get through um some of the the tougher decisions. But you can't keep everyone. That is that is the uh, the number one rule. All right. So I think that'll do it for um, this week's episode. My bi-week musings, if you will. Um, some bigger picture stuff to to kick around the brain as you head into the weekend. I encourage you all to uh, have a, a very nice and, well, do whatever you want with it. But, like, I'm going to rest. I'm going to relax a little bit. It's going to feel great. Kick the feet up. You know. Maybe have a beverage or two. It'll, it'll be great. Have a nice little, uh, have a nice little weekend off uh, before things get real and the Bills get a primetime game to uh, come back to. So that's always fun. All right. So uh, that'll do it for me. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Buffalo Beat. If you haven't yet, head over to theathletic.com slash Beat and subscribe. Um, to get all of our writings on just about everything Bill, well, everything Bills and and Every other team you could uh, you could want to read about, they, we have it all over at The Athletic. Okay. My name is Joe Biscaglia. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will talk to you after the bye week. See you then.